0: Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today, Body by Science with Dr. Bill Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 106 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we are joined again with Dr. Bill Campbell of University of South Florida. And we're going to be talking about some of the current research he's involved in, as well as his brand new research review. And the research that he discussed in his very first issue, talking about protein distribution and high protein breakfast versus low protein breakfast and how that affects increases in lean mass as well as body fat. And we're also going to talk about ultra processed foods and their effect on caloric intake, hunger, and physique. Dr. Bill Campbell, welcome back to the Eat Right podcast. And I guess we'll kind of start with just for our audience that some of our new listeners that haven't heard you on our podcast before, I want to talk about some of the research that you do that you're personally involved in.
1: Okay. So the research that I'm doing, like that my lab is currently doing, I'll just talk about what we've recently finished and then what were what we're about to start this fall. So what we just finished this last year, um, I guess it was last spring we we finished a study on protein intake in non-resistance trained females. So we've already we published my lab published a study a few years ago where we gave high protein and low protein to resistance trained females. Um, and not surprisingly, higher protein build a lot more muscle in, in resistance-trained females. This time, we wanted to ask a similar question in non-resistance-trained females. So does increasing protein intake help th- help a, n- a newbie, non-resistance-trained female, gain additional muscle mass? Or is it just the fact that they just started, it really doesn't matter because the training is enough of a stimulus? So that's one of the things we wanted to look at. And then secondly... We really wanted to take a coaching perspective with our study. So we had a secondary question. Our secondary question was, if you do increase protein, do they have to track it? Do they have to track their macros or can they just intuitively increase their protein intake? So what we did was we had three groups. We had a control group and these females just, we said, don't change anything about your diet. Just lift weights in my lab three days per week. Then we had two protein groups. One group we said, we're gonna train you how to track your macros. And the only thing we want you to do is set a goal of a gram per pound of protein intake or 2.2 grams per kg. And we're gonna teach you how to track it. And so they had to set a goal and they had to learn how to track their macros, but really only the protein. Then we had a third group where we said, we want you to increase your protein, but we don't want you to track anything. We just want you to simply try to intuitively increase your protein intake. And the way that we did that was we helped them identify which foods they were naturally eating that are already high in protein. And then we said, just double them. So if you have two eggs for breakfast, please try to eat four. If you have a chicken salad once a week, have it or put more chicken on it. If you have fish once per week, have fish twice per week. And what we found that we haven't analyzed all of the data yet. Um, But the data that we did analyze was around the protein intake. And what we found was that just telling them to intuitively increase their protein, they were able to do that. They went from about 1.1 grams per kg to about 1.4. So not a huge increase, but more than they would otherwise do. And then the group that we said set a goal and track it, they were able to get to two grams per kg. So they were able to get a lot more protein. Um, We did analyze body fat. There was no differences in body fat and we're still analyzing the the lean mass gain. So I don't have any data yet to share on that. So, and let me just also just give a, a 30 second overview of why we wanted to do this. If you're working with a new client, it's hard enough to get them to start exercise. That's a big lifestyle change. So it's probably a little bit overwhelming to a new client to say, hey, start exercising. Oh, and by the way, make sure you know your macros. Oh, and track them and make sure you get high protein. So we wanted to say, is it just enough to just not start tracking anything, just focus on exercise and then just naturally increase your protein? So that was the reason why we we had that secondary objective. You told them what protein sources were? Yeah, we had to educate them. Yeah. So we I have a large research team. We had about probably about 25 people. Um, and this was this was like a year and a half study because COVID shut it down once and we had to to make a lot of adjustments because of COVID. Now we were still able to supervise all of the workouts, but it was a long, you know, much longer process than what we had wanted. And yeah, we had to we had to educate um everybody except for the control group, but we had to educate a third of the subjects on well, two thirds of the subjects on what protein was and how to get more. And then a third of them, we had to teach them how to, you know, use a spreadsheet, track your macros, use my fitness pal, all of that.
0: Yeah. Cause I'd assume if you don't, a lot of people are just like, oh, cool. Peanut butter. That's a source of protein. And
1: I'm like, uh, not really. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we, that wouldn't have been on our list, um, of, of something for them to double.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just basically doubling
1: fat. That's how I kind of look at that little bit yeah, of that protein, be- but not much, you know. Yeah, the percentage, it's not so so great. <laughs> oh, and we did give them supplements. So that helped, um, the two groups. So it wasn't solely food, but and we tracked all that. So if they took one or two scoops, everything, we monitored everything. And then you had another study, or? Yeah, so uh, a study that we have going on right now is a fat loss supplement study. I don't know if you're familiar with Legion Athletics, that, that supplement company they have a fat loss supplement called Phoenix and they have a caffeinated and a non-caffeinated version. And what we're doing is we're studying that only for its impact on increasing metabolic rate and metabolism. So we're looking at the caffeinated version, the non-caffeinated version, and then a placebo with, with, with no active ingredients. So that study we started last spring and we're gonna finish that by the end of the year. And then my research team this fall, we're gonna be looking at, we're gonna do a systematic review and meta analysis. So uh, for anybody that might not know what that is, that is where you, you do a big search of all of the research that's been done on a particular topic. And you get all of those studies and then you analyze those studies and you try to come to conclusions based on what they found. So it's kind of like a summary of studies essentially. And what we're looking at is the effects of concurrent training on fat loss. So historically, concurrent training, that there's been a fear of something called an interference effect, where if you're resistance training and you add in cardio to your resistance training, there's a fear that it will limit your ability to build muscle. Well, the research in the past has kind of um, debunked that, that 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 doesn't really happen, at least not in naturally or, or, non-steroid using athletes. We don't have data on that population. But nobody's ever looked at the effects of what's the amount of fat loss that you get? What's the benefit of adding cardio to resistance exercise on fat loss? So we're gonna take that approach to this to this topic. So essentially we're looking at resistance training alone, how much fat do you lose there? Cardio alone, how much fat would you expect to lose there? And then when you combine them into your, into your exercise program, What's the overall effect on body fat loss? So we're very excited about that. One, because it's a new question. Two, it's going to force us to look at the best studies that actually compares resistance versus aerobic exercise for fat loss.
0: How long does it take you to do, just out of curiosity, meta-analysis versus an actual uh, experiment that, that you're running or original article?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, an original investigation, which I would call an intervention study from the time that you think of what you want to do and then probably till the time you're done, it's about a year. So from the thought to the time you're done, it's a year. And then you have to add on more time of that to when you actually get it published in a journal. So that can be, you know, two years. Um, This is my lab's first or I'd say it's our second systematic review the first one that I'm leading. And it's probably also going to be about a year, um, and part of that is because I'm learning how to do that myself. I've never done one of these before, so me and my team now, um, Corey and Lexa Roxtella, the three of us, that those are my research coordinators, we're going through some some training from an expert that does these. Uh, I'm a librarian that does systematic reviews, meta-analysis, so we're 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 trying to do this. To, the, to our best abilities as possible. And one thing that a lot of people don't know, there is a lot of systematic reviews and meta-analyses published in our field. A lot of them are not done well. There's a lot of problems with them. So we're committed to taking our time. Again, it's, if, if you're going to do them right, they take a long time. We probably spent, uh, this is what we're working on now. We're just getting our search terms and we probably spent cumulatively between the three of us probably 10 to 20 hours, just coming up with the terms that we're going to use to search for the articles that we that we were going to find in this area. So that's just one tiny slice of that pie.
0: And then you got to sift through all that stuff and inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria
1: and figure out, yes. you know. Yeah. 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 So yeah. you, it sounds like you might, you, you've been around the block a few times with these. So um, we're going to bring in my, my research team. So we're starting a new semester in the next month. So a lot of my research team will have some turnover. So we're going to get a team on that part where, yes. So if we generate, let's say, I don't know, let's just say it's 1800 studies. It won't, there'll be like eight of us that go through all of those studies. And like you're saying, which ones do we include based on our predetermined inclusion criteria? Which ones do we throw out that don't meet our criteria? And then which ones are maybe. So, you know, so you might go from 1,800 to 60 that you know you, or in this case, it won't be that many, maybe maybe 20 that you know you want to keep. And then there might be another 10 or 15 that are maybes that we'll have to sift through.
0: Sounds intense. It sounds like a lot of reading.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was
2: going to say, that sounds like a lot.
1: It is. Um, it's a lot of work. Now, the easy thing is, and I've done this before, there's another type of review article called a narrative review. And I've published those and that takes away all of the hard work <laughs> because you just start writing. There is no predetermined um, system of articles that you're gonna include and exclude. Now, the, the problem with those are they're highly subject to bias. So somebody could only choose the studies that point in one direction. Now, hopefully an author would not do that. You, you would hope that they would not be biased and hopefully I wasn't, but the potential is greater when it's not a systematic review um, just because of the, you know, there's, there's no rules that you're, that you're setting for yourself. But I'll also say you've probably heard this. You can cherry pick and use statistics to make whatever argument. So ultimately you really have to have faith in the people doing the research. Do they, are they credible? Are they ethical? At least that's, 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 that's been my opinion being in this career for the last 15 years. Do you think that,
0: This I just I guess I kind of have a question about bias in research, right? Since we're on that topic, do you think that most, if not all researchers have some kind of inherent bias when they're looking through their lens in in a specific field?
1: Yeah, I would say naturally, every almost nearly everybody has bias. And I think that's natural Uh, where I think it gets problematic is when you have researchers with commercial interests in what they're studying so there are certain re- i'll just use an example um let's just say ketogenic diets that's a popular topic does that researcher have books on ketogenic dieting do they you know are they, are they selling they have- products yes right that's um and again, that doesn't have to mean that that it's troubling. It just means that should raise a red flag. Like, are you profiting from? And I'm I love capitalism. I like to see researchers do well financially. So I I, I might I, I'm not necessarily have a problem with that as long as they are transparent and saying, hey, I have these products. I write these books. What you know? Um, I think that that really. And I don't think anybody. As long as you're transparent, I don't think anybody cares. But people that are, at least in my experience, they're researchers that have done the same thing and they have products or commercial. Now, let me also say, I, I, I have stocks. Um, I don't really know which ones I have. My wife handles all that. But I'm sure I am I have stocks in something where maybe there's a, a distant relationship. Now, again, if I guess if I don't know which ones, I really can't be... Um, objectively biased in that case, but um, yeah. What does the researcher, do they profit from the sales of a particular product, diet modality, exercise device, et cetera, et cetera. And if the answer is yes, that doesn't mean you should just, that you have to throw it out. It just means it should raise a red flag that you would critique that better. And then the ultimate, uh, um, the, the validity that you would be wanting to look for is multiple labs, multiple different researchers doing similar types of studies on a given topic and do they all come to the same conclusions or is only one research group coming up with something different than everybody else that's kind of like a a test that you can look at
0: yeah or if they come up with different uh conclusion what was the population was it a different population or you know obviously there are some differences there um yes good stuff i i want to talk about your recent research review uh, that we read, which was fabulous. It was a good start. Uh, And I I honestly think the layout is great. It's really easy to understand. What kind of research should we expect moving forward in your research review?
1: Well, first, I want to thank you for wanting to talk about my research review. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Because because I want to talk about my research review. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what you can expect. And let me also just let me give a, a little more of a broader introduction to it. Uh, this is my first, pr- I guess, product. So now when I do research, am I biased? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm selling <laughs> education. So I had a lot of anxiety just about launching this, like g- creating a website and like all this stuff that I have no clue how to do. So I'm I'm very relieved that it's finally launched. i I think I think I told you we talked about this the last yeah. time off 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 air, whatever it is when you're not recording. Yeah. Um, so you know how long I've been, I've been working on this. Um, so what you can expect is the most relevant research as it relates to building muscle and losing body fat. So a lot of diet related research, a lot of resistance training research, a lot of exercise, some sports supplements, but really focused on building muscle, losing body fat. So a summary of that relevant research, some of it recent, some of it historically great landmark studies. Uh, I'm working on one now that it was published in 2000. And in that same issue, I have I'm working on another review of an article that's not even published yet. So I have one that's going to be published in the future and I have another one that was done you know over 20 years ago. But in all cases, the studies that I'm choosing are the studies either historically, current or sometimes even into the future. They are studies that should change the way that you train your athletes, train your clients, or the way that you train yourself, or the way that you structure your own exercise and nutrition programs. Now, if it doesn't change it, I promise that it will validate what you're doing. So, there, in my opinion, there there are no studies that aren't relevant to building your body, to trying to lose fat, trying to build muscle, something in that realm. So that's what you can expect. And then one other aspect that that I'm trying to really focus on is the application. So I review two studies a month. We already know what they're about, fat loss or building muscle. So then we have the, okay, Dr. Campbell just summarized the study. He gave it some context. Why are they doing this? What were the results? Then I'm bringing in expert coaches, physicians, dietitians, other researchers, And I'm asking them, okay, you've heard the science. Now, how would you apply this into your life as as you program your own exercise and nutrition program or into the lives of your clients? And I think that's the best, the truest value of of what I'm bringing to the market here. Because anybody can read research. Anybody can look at the results. But if I can stimulate ideas for everybody on how to apply that, and again, they my experts may do something in a way that you wouldn't think of and there's value in that or maybe you think similarly. That's again, I'm most proud of the that added value of the application.
2: I absolutely could not agree more with the coupling of the two. I told I I texted Aaron after I read the first for the July and I was like, "Did you check out the Um, like words of wisdom and solutions and how to like move forward. I thought that part for me, just because I love food psychology piece is really powerful and what to do with clients. And I think there's a lot of trainers and coaches out there that, like you said, they read the research and we understand it. But then when a client comes to you with more of the problem piece and I know the emotional part isn't kind of part of the science, but it is part of the coaching process. And so it's super important to be able to understand how to talk to a client come up with ideas, ways to coach them through it. For me, I was like, ooh, this is exciting. That's
1: the best part. Okay. Well, thank you. That th- Then you've just validated what I've been trying to do.
2: Yeah. Um, it feels good to feel like you... Some of the things that are in there, I've either already discussed with a client or I coach that way. So the validation part is important. And then any new ideas, man, I'm always open to anything.
1: Yeah, and and if I'm going to be honest, in in your case, Nicole, and and you as well, Daron, you're probably going to just get more validation than than ideas. But there's a lot of people entering this space as coaches that aren't evidence-based. And those people... I'm hoping, oh, wow, I don't have to be extreme or, wow, I actually do have to consider that my client is a mother of two and works a nursing job. And maybe I should have a little empathy with my prescription of resistance. So uh, validation for people like you, but an appreciation and an education for probably less experienced evidence-based coaches. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say I'll say this.
0: Nicole and I are probably the perfect example of like the two target audiences that you have here because (laughs) we're our mixture on this podcast as well. And in our in our business model, Nicole's the coach's coach. Like she's the coach to me in my eyes. I'm like Nicole is the coach, the behavior, the how the application. And I love the research. Right. So you Ah. your review has the best of both worlds because you get the stuff that Nicole loves to read and you get the stuff that I love to read. Right. So it's you're almost you're kind of targeting two different audiences here. Uh, And the other thing that I love, and that's something that, you know, you and I had had um, kind of exchanged messages about. I'm like, this just makes my life so much easier in terms of content creation. Right. Because it takes a very long time to dive into you know full bodies of research and look at different articles and stuff and sometimes it's exhausting and to be able to push out content is you know now I'm looking at it from a content creation standpoint and I'm like to push out content in the way that Instagram wants you to push out content so that you can catch that algorithm and move with it it just makes life a lot easier to have okay well this is reviewed by somebody that I trust and you know I can use that information in what the education that I'm delivering
1: online too. Yeah. And I, 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 think that is, that is wise. I don't know why everybody wouldn't use it for that purpose. If you just use it for content creation, because it's, it's curated in a way that you can take the little sound bites. And again, I think it's nice if people give me credit, but you, you, most people don't. And I, I it's not like I'm going to go out of my way. Hey, did you get that? Cause I'm getting the research from other people. So it's not like I'm generating all this research. So if you're if you if you're subscribing to this and you're not generating content if if you're in a position where you need to generate content, I I, I think you're 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 missing a lot of potential um that you would otherwise be getting because it's I, I, it's funny. I I want to say it's bite-sized science and that's really what it is. I I jokingly say you you don't it's not too sciency. It's a research <laughs> review. It's science. But I want it to be able to speak to people who don't or or who cannot read a scientific article. And I don't think you have to. That's my job. I break that down. And then again, you guys, you know that there's an application piece here. But yeah, you're a coach. You're serious about your own training or you need to produce content in exercise and nutrition, fitness realm. I think those are the three types of people that would get value from it.
2: Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think, think I asked hope- for
1: your guys' advice just on pricing. Again, I'm not a business person, but I know I set out my goal would be every fitness professional could have access to this. I didn't want price to be something that, oh, I can't do this. So I'm I'm hoping that the price is set such that, that would not, that would not be a reason why somebody would not want to get it. I think it's a fair price.
2: I do too. Absolutely.
1: Can
0: we talk about some of the stuff uh,
1: in the first issue?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Two studies, right? First one is protein distribution. And uh, that was evaluated. And, you know, this was actually interesting because the limitation that you found probably would have been the limitation that I found. I don't know if the authors mentioned that, but the quantity of protein in the study wasn't optimal. I think it was, what, 90 to 100 grams?
1: Yeah, it was like 1.4 grams per kg. Um, Wait, hold on. I'm trying to remember there, there, there was two studies we're talking about the protein distribution study.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The first one, the protein distribution study. Yeah.
1: I think it, I want to say it was like 1.4 grams per kg, but um, yeah, they weren't big men. So yeah, you, you may be right about 90 to hundred grams.
0: And uh, talk to us a little bit about that study and, you know, some of the results that we found and just kind of the uh, overall theme of the research when it comes to protein distribution and, and what we want to look for there.
1: Yeah, so this was a study that I covered in what I what I call the inaugural issue. And the reason I'm calling it the inaugural issue is because I'm I'm making that one free to see if people like it so they can they can get that for free and then I actually have an issue number 1 which is the next issue <laughs> just to make things I guess complicated. So it's the inaugural issue, it was the July issue and in in one of the two studies that we covered it was about protein distribution. So the question is how should we distribute our protein over the course of the day? It Does it matter if we eat all of our protein in one meal or five meals? Like, wh- What's the deal in terms of maximizing muscle mass? So what the researchers did was they had two groups of resistance-trained males. And that's key because there's just not many studies where they have resistance-trained people in, in, in the study. So this one was very relevant to our lifestyle and the types of people that you guys work with. And what they did was they said, hey, we're going to have one group follow a traditional Western diet, which is kind of like a protein skewing diet, where there's a very small amount of protein at breakfast, a little more at lunch, and then at dinner, a big dose of protein. So it's skewed towards dinner. The other group, they said, we're going to give, we want you to have the same amount of protein as the other group. But we're gonna more equally distribute your protein. So there's approximately an equal amount at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it's equal throughout the day. And what they found at the end of the study, I think it was an eight-week resistance training intervention. The group that equally distributed or approximately equally distributed their protein throughout the day gained more muscle mass than the other group. So the other again, the other group gained muscle, but they didn't gain nearly as much as the group that spaced it out more dist- or more evenly distributed throughout the day. And that's something before this study we didn't we didn't have any research to point to in humans that said, see, you gain more muscle. What we did have was cellular data like muscle protein synthesis data. I'm aware of two studies where both of them in kind of implied, yes, it makes sense that you will maximize muscle protein synthesis over a 24 hour period if you have adequate protein boluses throughout the day rather than just one big or or a bunch of small ones throughout the day. So this study validated what we already knew from the cellular studies, but cellular studies, um, cellular data does not always translate into actual muscle building results, but in this case it did. So that's the value. So when everybody, for the rest of my life, that there's never been, if there's never going to be another study, if anybody ever, ever asks me the question, how should I do this? I will say, well, the most important thing is your total daily protein intake. Make sure that you get enough. And then after that, try to distribute it evenly. And then I point to that study because that's the study that, that was done in humans under controlled conditions.
0: Now, it's attributed to the even distribution more so than it is eating the protein first thing in the morning essentially right is what, what we're yeah, thinking because
1: yeah really the only difference was let's just let's just say they got a hundred grams of protein let's just pretend that was the case the evenly distributed did 33 for breakfast 33 for lunch 33 for dinner it, it wasn't that but it was you know approximately close the other group still got a hundred grams but it was like 10 40 for lunch 10 for breakfast 40 for lunch and then 50 for dinner so yeah what what the only difference was the amounts of proteins at those feeding times. So the only explanation for the increase in muscle mass was the fact that they got more evenly distributed throughout the day so that they essentially they met, you could, if you want to take it a step further, they, they hit their leucine threshold three times throughout the day rather than two or maybe one time throughout the day.
2: For all my female clients that are listening to this podcast that give me a hard time about spreading your protein out equally throughout your meals, I want you to rewind what he just said and listen to it again.
1: <laughs> and all we're doing is citing the evidence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there a threshold on how much protein per
1: sitting? Like, would, would that contribute to it, too? Uh that gets a little dicey. The the research would say, and then then we'll talk about the limitations to that research. Two studies have said that 20 to 30 grams is what you need to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Um, Another study said that 40 grams was better than 20 um, in terms of muscle protein synthesis. So the problem with some of those studies are if you only base your total daily protein intake on those studies, then you're going to have 30 grams, three or four times per day, and that's not much protein for somebody my size or your size. So there's there's a disconnect between a per meal protein feeding and what we know about daily protein intakes, like they don't quite match up. And the reasons for that is two reasons, at, at, when you look at a meal by meal basis, they'll say that 30 grams is no better than 20 or 40 is no better than 20. And statistically speaking, they're right. Muscle protein synthesis may have been, let's say went up 20% with 20 grams and 28% with 40 grams, but that didn't reach statistical significance, that 8% difference. But there was still was an increase. So there's one problem. It's just not enough to make it statistically significant. So the message that the scientists put out is no difference when in fact, well, there was a difference, it just didn't reach the level of statistical significance. The other problem is the research, the the resistance exercise that they use in those studies was like one muscle group for three sets or maybe five sets of a muscle group. And people don't typically train one body part for only five sets. So you didn't really get a, a full Stimulus that your body could adapt to with the protein. So there's another another issue with that, and a third problem is not looking at muscle protein breakdown. So protein intake not only increases muscle protein synthesis, the other half of the equation is muscle protein breakdown, and that that can be suppressed with elevated protein intake as well. So um, if I if I were to if you can think of like an, an asymptote where your protein goes up and then it starts to level out. So the way that I um, interpret the the research is if you keep eating more and more protein after a certain point, you get less and less of a benefit. So if I were to go from 100 grams to 200 grams, 300 grams, 400 grams, I believe I'm still getting a benefit on the stimulus for building muscle as I keep increasing it, but it gets less and less and less and to the point where it's just not practically relevant to keep in eating more protein. So... Is there a benefit to going above 1.6 grams per kg? Yes, but that benefit is less than going from 1.2 to 1.6. Going from 1.6 to 2.2, to a benefit, but a less of a benefit. And then going from 2.2 to, let's say, 2.8, still a benefit in my opinion, but again, less and less and less.
0: Question for you about that. You talked about the muscle breakdown, like the anti-catabolic effect, I guess, of protein. Yeah. That would kind of change if you're looking at carbs too, though, right? Because carbs, you know, especially we look at research on carbs post-workout that has a, an anti-catabolic effect too.
1: Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting. Carbs have an anti-catabolic effect, not because they're carbs, but because they elevate insulin. So insulin is what has the anti-catabolic effect on on, on suppressing muscle protein breakdown. It just so happens that if you take whey protein, whey protein is very insulinogenic. So in theory, if you're trying to manage calories, I would suggest if you're a physique athlete or you're concerned about your physique, again, not not if you're a sport athlete, different population. I would suggest if you're trying to cut calories, you don't really need carbs post-workout if you're taking whey protein because you're getting the same hormonal response Uh, But if you, if you, you know, if you're a power lifter or somebody that needs to perform and you need energy for long training sessions, then I think carbohydrates are more um, needed and recommended post-workout.
0: Let's get into the other study on this. And this one was one that I especially found interesting. And I do have some questions for you on this. Um, I know that you're generally a proponent of a more flexible approach or flexible dieting, correct?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's. Well, not now I'm not, but <laughs> it's what I follow when I'm on my game. And when I'm not on my game, I gain body fat. <laughs> well, kind of
0: Um, if it's the theme of your overall research is right. Like, how do we optimize your physique in a maintainable or sustainable way? So I guess this study kind of speaks to that a little bit. And it's essentially does eating processed foods Make it more difficult to optimize your physique, I guess, is is the question. And um, they kind of looked at eating non-processed versus ultra-processed foods. And I think you mentioned there's not so much of a clear definition of what ultra-processed looks like. What do you think ultra-processed really means?
1: Potato chips. (laughs) Um,
0: Cookies, cakes, things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cookies, potato chips, Probably All the quote-unquote
2: bad stuff, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Candy, Halloween candy, Twix, Milky Ways. <laughs> um, if I'm just going to name foods. Now, there is some. There is a database. I think it was formed, I want to say South America, maybe Brazil. But a research group created a database where they actually have a category and a ranking system of non-process. So non-process would be like banana or potato And then you get processed and then you get ultra processed. And I don't know the, I I don't know the system, but I do know the number of steps that it takes to get the food from the earth to the table, that will dictate if it's ultra processed or not. So like an example, oatmeal is a processed food, right? Because oatmeal doesn't come out as little flakes. They have to get it to that point. Um, Here's something that I, I didn't know and it kind of frustrated me protein bars that I eat every day. That's a processed food. In fact, I think it's ultra processed. I never really considered that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. I do don't, I don't pick a protein bar from a tree. <laughs>
0: Definitely not. <laughs> so let's talk. Let's uh, talk to us a little bit about the study
1: and, uh, you know, what they what the researchers did and what they concluded. Well, first of all, they had a ton of money to pull this one off. This was at least a hundred thousand dollars study, by my estimation, wouldn't be shocked if it were two hundred thousand dollars. Because what they did, they housed their subjects in a metabolic ward for like a month, and they had to have an entire kitchen staff of people to to make all of these meals. Every meal was formed for the subjects, and the amazing thing—well, let me let me—I'll get to the amazing thing in a second. Subjects lived in a metabolic ward called a hotel or something, something similar where they were living in this facility for a month. They uh, maybe even a little bit longer than a month that every subject spent two weeks eating a non-processed food diet. And then they had a little washout period. And then they spent another two weeks in following or eating a ultra processed food diet. Now some of those subjects reversed it some you know half started with the ultra processed food diet the other half started with a non processed food diet now back to the amazing thing the amazing thing that the researchers did is they matched the diets for macronutrients fiber and salt how do you match an ultra processed food diet for sodium with an unprocessed food. And I think the answer was they just, you know, they were putting fiber in drinks and mixing it up, Um, just weird things, but they matched it. Now it was matched by the way that I understand it. They they gave the subjects, here's your breakfast. And one breakfast was ultra processed. And the other was, here's your breakfast. And it was a non-processed breakfast, equal calories, equal fiber, equal sodium. But what was not equal was they told the subjects eat as much or as little of this as you would like. And what they found was that at the end of the study, the subjects that were when they were following the ultra processed food diet, even though it was matched for all of these nutrients, they ate about 500 calories more per day eating the ultra processed food diet. And they gained a significant amount of body weight. I think they gained about two pounds Um, a kilogram of body weight over the two weeks, the non-processed food diet, they actually lost a little bit of weight. And I talked about this in the research review. One thing, it puzzled me until I thought about it some more. Uh, The thing that kind of shocked me was the hunger levels were equal. And I was like, that doesn't make sense because I know when I eat potato chips, it's like I didn't eat anything. So I have to eat the entire bag of potato chips, <laughs> and then get a Coke to kind of wash that <laughs> down. So I know, and I I also know the research literature. Processed foods are not satiating; they don't make you feel full. So I thought, what am I missing here? And then it dawned on me, their hungers were equal. But then, if you ask, well, why was it equal? Well, they had to eat an additional 500 calories a day to get to to get that level of hunger the same. So. When you look at it like that, they were They, they were more hungry. They, they ate more food to get the same feeling of satiation. So ultimately, the, the outcome of that study is if you're going to eat an ultra-processed food diet, you are going to eat more calories to feel full. Or if you're not going to eat as many calories, you're going to be hungry. So there's nothing good about an ultra-processed food diet. And again, I like it ultra processed foods. I'm not somebody as a flexible dieting follower. I'm not somebody who would say don't eat processed foods. The only thing I would say is if you're going to have a lot of processed foods, just understand the trade-off is you're going to, you're going to be battling hunger more if you're trying to diet, or even if you're just trying to not overeat.
0: Um, I would guess that if they had eaten the same amount of calories, ultra processed, yeah. Or would non-processed. Be. They would have essentially almost had the same results weight
1: wise. That, that that would be that's what I would think, too. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. If, you know, if protein was the same yep, same calories, same protein. I don't think there would have been a difference.
0: Was protein the same between groups? Yeah. So protein Actually, and I mean, fiber protein and fiber was the same and sodium. So it's, it's just kind of interesting with the protein and fiber, though, because we think of those things as satiating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, but remember, um, they were the same at the at the initial offering of the meal. So there was something about, here's, again, not a food scientist, there was something about the non-processed foods that they had in them that were more satiating. Um, I don't know, maybe the body had to work harder to break the, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. But I know when you read that study, the fact that they had, they went to those lengths to so that, because if you didn't go to those lengths, then you would say, well, yeah, there was higher protein in the non-processed food diet. Of course they didn't eat as much or there was more fiber. So they kind of took that off the table. And I don't know if you remember, like I gave examples of the, like the snacks. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, like baked Lay's chips was an ultra processed foods choice. Um, I can't remember one of the non-processed. It was probably more like fruit or fruit, something. Fruit, yep were their snacks. So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting
0: because oftentimes we're like, hey, if you get more protein in and you get more fiber in. But apparently what this study shows is that beyond that, there is a satiating effect of having more whole foods, regardless of protein and fiber. And I think that's a, a, a pretty cool thing to note.
1: Yes. Yep. I, I agree. Let's just talk about, I mean, those two studies, if you're working with clients, I mean, I would, sh- I would share them with my clients. Hey, you know, the reason I'm, a- I'm asking you to enjoy yourself, have some processed foods, but not go overboard is based on this study or, you know, Hey, the reason I'm asking you to, you know, try to get more protein at breakfast, which is hard for a lot of people. I'm not just saying this because that's what I do. I'm basing it on this evidence. And I- and if you're hiring me as your coach, you're hiring me for all of the time I spend researching this research. Yeah. Doing the, the, the reading of the research and staying current on the, the latest evidence to help you.
2: Yeah. And people also want to know how to get there. I hate to use the word fast because fast obviously isn't the approach, but at the same time, I get clients a lot of the time that will be like, is this actually going to work? Will this work? Mm -hmm. And now I, I, And I mean, I always say yes, because I do know, but it's nice to be able to say, this is the reason why, and let's give it a try. And, you know, humans want certainty in knowing what they're doing, especially when it comes to nutrition, because there's so many ways to get to the pot of gold um, that I think it's just, it's interesting with different types of people and personalities. Like one of the pieces in the like practical piece to the overprocessed stuff was ways to get clients to understand that the all or nothing approach isn't going to get us very far and so when clients are like well i'm just going to take it all out and eat nothing or i'm going to eat everything we're going to spend more time trying to get through all of the psychological pieces to that before we can actually get to the actual program stuff that will create the change that you're looking to achieve. So I love being able to utilize the 80-20 rule or have sprinkle in the good stuff, but you have to get in the, the nutritious food that's going to nourish your body so that you can get your workouts in and that you can get your steps in and that you can sleep well, like all the other facets to creating a healthy lifestyle.
1: Yes. Yep. And that's your value as a coach where you appreciate that. And none of that's sexy. None of them. No, it's so boring, but.
2: (laughs)
0: yes. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Somebody once asked me one day, uh, this was recently she had asked me, what is the acceptable amount of processed foods that you can include? And my answer was, "I, I really don't know. But what what I do know is and this is where biofeedback comes in with coaching when we say, okay, well, are you hungry? Are you satiated? And those, I think, are questions that people need to ask themselves when they're consuming, when they're choosing to add some processed foods, which is okay. But you have to look at your level of hunger and satiety and kind of turn that dial a little bit if you're finding that you're overly hungry or maybe you can get away with putting a little bit more in. And then obviously really the biggest thing is if you're accounting for your macronutrients, you're accounting for your total calories at the end of the day. Uh, And like you say, which is, I think something that I probably would say I adopted from you, Bill, is I typically tell people now account for your protein and then your carbs and fat. You can split up in any way, any direction that you want. I mean, those are really your energy sources. And then protein is kind of that anchor and that builder. And uh, it's it's really going to be dependent on the person in terms of how much processed food they can put into their meal plan and still still feel satiated and get to that place that they want to get to. That's all good stuff. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that you're doing this. I do love the the review that you're putting together, it was definitely great quality information. And like I said, I I think that it's going to fit for uh, multiple different demographics of coaches, uh, which I think would be probably one of your, your biggest demographics for this. Correct.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. As I sit and I write each issue, I struggle. Do I, do I use language that for coaches? And I'd say that's, that's, that's kind of my default. Like, Hey, your clients are thinking this or, or, you know, apply this to your clients. But I also want to appreciate if you're serious about your own training, you don't have to be a fitness professional. You can just want to be an evidence based in what you do. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's, those are the two audience that I, as I'm sitting down, that's who I'm writing to, but I think it more naturally does serve coaches better.
0: Good stuff. And where can we find this? Where can we uh, sign up for a subscription just so for our audience?
1: Yeah. So if you go to my website, which is BillCampbellPhD.com, you can get the inaugural issue for free. Again, I do that just so, well, one, I can get your email. And then two, you can see if, it, if you like it. Um, and if you like it, you can just go to the buy now link on the same web page. And what you'll do is you'll you'll put in your credit card information. You'll get charged $6.99 per month. For now, the price will go up as soon as my um, launch period is over. And I, I don't know. I'm hesitant to say when that will be. I just know I'm going to increase the price after this initial launch period. Um, but right now, it's six ninety nine, dollars And every month, you get two articles plus the... Again, the the expert application on both of those articles is
0: that six ninety nine grandfathered. So if you sign
1: up now, you have that price moving forward. Yeah, that's um, that's that was the intention, and that's what I was told by 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 the people who know how to do this stuff. Because somebody else asked me that as well. Yeah. So when it goes to eighty eight dollars, <laughs> <laughs> if you got it at six ninety nine, you stay there. And I don't. I mean, does that mean for life? I, I guess so. I don't. I, I guess I don't know how that works, but yes, I was told and my intention was that the price would not go up for anybody that was smart enough to get it while it was the lowest price available.
0: So with that being said, for anybody listening to this episode, yeah, get on go it. sign up now so that you can get this price because you won't have this price for long. It sounds like
1: that is that is true. And when I say long, uh, maybe another month.
0: All right. Good stuff. Listen, Bill, as always, we appreciate the work that you're doing and we appreciate what you're doing in this industry. Um, I think it's commendable. Keep keep doing what you're doing and uh, keep providing information for evidence-based coaches. I think that's excellent.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your always enthusiasm for what I do. And that that's. Um, I want to thank you guys for having me on again and let me talk about what I like.
0: Absolutely. And- If you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.